Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 30. And if you'll remember, we uh, took this lesson here out of a sequence because uh, we had to deal with all the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And the altar of incense is spoken of in the 30th chapter, and it's not spoken of back in the 25th chapter. So we'll come back to chapter 26 in just a little bit and continue with our studies there. But meanwhile, there's a little part of chapter 30 that we haven't finished. Now then, we've studied all the different pieces of furniture of the tabernacle. If you'll remember, we studied the Ark of the Covenant. We studied the Mercy Seat. We studied the Table of Showbread and the Lampstand. And then the Altar of Incense. We found it way over here in the 30th chapter. And we've covered all that. And we'll get into some more things in a little bit, but there's the last verses of the 30th chapter, and then we'll turn back to chapter 26 and take up with our uh, studies there. So, look at chapter 30, if you will, uh, and verse 12. It says, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. Let's stop there just a moment. That's why I gave you tonight. It's way ahead of time. Because in Deuteronomy is where you find... I mean, not Deuteronomy. In the book of Numbers, you find the numbering of the uh, different tribes of the children of Israel. And if you have the little outline I gave you, a little diagram, diagram of the Israelitish camp, you'll find that each one is spoken of there. And when you get to the book of Numbers, chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll find that the total of these that you have on this uh, diagram are 603,550. The Levites were not included in that number because uh, God specified that they would not be numbered for a specific reason. But if you have that diagram that I gave you, you'll find that they total to 603,550. And you'll find that in the book of Numbers, the uh, second chapter. Let me see if I can give you the verse that will show exactly what, what it is. It's Numbers chapter 2 and verse... Uh, Numbers chapter 2 and verse uh, 32. It says, These are those which were numbered of the children of Israel by the house of their fathers, all those that were numbered of the camps throughout their hosts were 600,000 and 3,000, that would be 603,000, and 550. So, that's the total number of them. And the reason I gave this to you was for more than just one reason, because we talk about them being numbered here in Exodus 30, verse 12 which would be uh, something that would happen in the future. And yet, I wanted to show you also the way that they're arranged around the tabernacle. Notice the tabernacle is right in the center of this whole uh, diagram. You'll see a little square-looking, a rectangular-looking box there, which is the tabernacle. And it shows their relationship as the way they camped around the tabernacle. And basically, that would be the only reason I'll give you that uh, this evening, is because uh, to show you how that they were arranged around 
of the tabernacle. Now, let's get back to our studies here in Exodus chapter 30, if you will, and verse 12. We'll read uh, verses 12 through, uh, through uh, 16. Exodus 30, verses 12 through 16. <clears throat> well, we could read verse 11 too. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. It had to be done this way or God would uh, bring a plague. Remember, David numbered them at one time and brought uh, trouble upon uh, the nation because of the way he did it. And that's why there's a warning here that there be no plague among them. You'll find that in Second Samuel, I believe it's chapter 24, but that's another sub point of the message. But let's follow on. Verse 13, This day they shall give everyone that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty geras. It's about one-fifth of an ounce of weight, not in coin, because coin was not introduced until the 6th century B.C., but a half shekel. A shekel in twenty is twenty geras. Uh, and half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered, from twenty years old and above, shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than a half shekel when they... Uh, Give an offering unto the Lord to make atonement for their for your souls. Now notice this was atonement money. It's very important to remember it was atonement money. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel. Now this is very important too. And appoint, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Now, that's the section we want to deal with uh, at this time. We've noticed a lot of things. That, first of all, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less. So, the value of redemption, uh, a ransom or redemption money, was all the same for rich and poor. We have to remember that. And when we come over to the New Testament and understand why it points to the blood of Christ and the salvation we have in Him, we'll know that He is the only one that's sufficient for rich and poor, bond and free, and the only one that anyone can look to for uh, redemption. And it points to the blood of Christ. There's another important thing, thing before we get too far along, and that is in verse 16, you notice it, it shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation that it may be a memorial to the children for the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. So this silver redemption money was appointed for the service of the tabernacle. Now, very specifically, the uh, when we get to it, we're not there yet, but you'll find that there were sockets of silver for the foundation of the tabernacle. Sockets of silver. Because the boards had two tenons that sat down in these sockets of silver. So, the silver formed the foundation for the tabernacle. Redemption is the very foundation of, that Christ provided for our salvation. And it's called a half shekel here. The redemption money or ransom money for each individual. 
And in the New Testament, you'll find in First uh, Peter chapter one verse eighteen, Peter says, "For as much as you know, you were not redeemed." There you have the word, redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by Him to believe in God that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So, He is the redemption of our souls, or His blood is, that He shed on the cross. See how that ties in with the foundation of the tabernacle? See how that ties in with the redemption money of silver? Not with silver and gold from your vain conversation, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's Ephesians, not Ephesians, but 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. And you'll find that uh, it is the blood of Christ alone that can meet our responsibility to God as sinners. And it's the blood of Christ alone that can make atonement for our souls. And it is in Christ's blood that we have redemption. We quoted, I believe, this morning possibly in some of the things that we said that uh, Colossians 1 verse, verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Ephesians 1 7, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. And then this one in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Redemption through the blood of Christ. And 19 speaks of the blood. So, uh, we notice that the rich and poor must give alike. That there is no difference. On the basis of salvation, atonement, forgiveness, redemption, the rich man is just as responsible to accept Christ and His shed blood as the poor man. And all in between. There's no difference. You know... Uh, the salvation that we have in the Lord is a leveler. It levels everybody out. Puts us all on the same ground. You say, oh, that real rich man, he, he can give uh, more. Well, he can, but he doesn't, necessarily, he doesn't need to because the blood of Christ. And the poor man, he doesn't have enough. But he can give the blood of Christ or he, he can accept the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Rich and poor, bond and free. It reminds me of Noah's Ark, in a way, that uh, there was only one door in the side. And you know, everyone had to enter. I mean, even the fowls of the air that came down. The doves, we know there were doves on the aboard the ship. And uh, we know that the creatures that crawled up had to come in on the same level. And man walked in upright. And so there, it's a leveling effect. And the Bible says there's one door. Christ said, I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Shall go in and out and find pasture. So, only one way. I know that there are people who like to make more different ways for different classes of people and different social standings of people, but that will not work. That will not work. And thank God it's that He's no respecter of persons and that it meets everyone's need. And that it's exactly like it's said here. Now then, having said that about redemption, and we could have a whole sermon on it, but I think you already get the point. At least I hope I've made it clear enough. So let's turn back now, if you will. We've all in our Bibles to chapter 26, because 
we finished chapter 25 when we took up the candlestick and then we had to go to chapter 30 to get the other piece of furniture. If you look at your diagram, that's the only piece of furniture was the golden altar of incense that we hadn't covered because all of them were covered up to this point. Everything in the holy place. Now, if you look at that little uh, picture of the tabernacle, you can disregard for the moment the numbering of the children of Israel and the Israelitish camp because that's not necessary. But if you look that we studied the golden altar of incense, that was the last piece of the furniture of the tabernacle that we studied. And so, having said that, we'll get to the uh, 26th chapter of Exodus and continue with studying other parts of the tabernacle. Now then, in studying the 26th chapter, I'd like for us to look at the roof of the tabernacle and uh, what it's consisted of. And we'll read the section first of all. Uh, Chapter 26, verses 1 through 14. 1 through 14. Now this is the section for our study right now. It says, Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen, And blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. The length of the one curtain shall be eight and twenty cubits. That's twenty-eight cubits. The breadth of one curtain, four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have one measure. The five curtains shall be coupled together, one to another. And the other five curtains, now notice there's ten curtains in verse one, shall be coupled together, one to another. So you had... Uh, ten curtains all coupled together to make the the ceiling of the tabernacle, we'll call that. And it gives you the dimensions of them. So it would cover the whole of the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place. It would be the ceiling for all of it. It would hang over the sides. At least a particular part of the sides. Not all the way down. Now then, verse 4, And thou shalt make loops of blue upon the edge of the one curtain from the selvage in the coupling, and likewise shalt thou make in the uttermost edge of another curtain in the coupling of the second. Fifty loops shalt thou make in one curtain. Fifty loops shalt thou make in the edge of the curtain that is uh, in the coupling of the second, that the loops may take hold one of another. And thou shalt make fifty taches of gold. These were things that were would hold them together. (coughs) Okay. Uh, That's verse 6. And couple the curtains together with the tashes, and it shall be one tabernacle. In other words, one covering for the tabernacle. And thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair. By the way, you might uh, take special note of verse 1. That's the ceiling of it. And then you get to verse 7. You have goat's hair. This is the next covering. To be a covering upon the tabernacle, eleven curtains shalt thou make. Why eleven? This would cover more than the actual ten curtains, wouldn't it? You had an extra one of these. The length of the one curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of one four cubits. Now notice the difference. The length, instead of twenty-eight cubits compared to verse two, you have these uh 30 cubits. So it would overhang the ceiling part on the sides of the tabernacle. See what I'm talking about? There would be one cubit on each side that it would hang over. Instead of 28 like the ceiling, 
you had 30. That's very important because, you know, the, the roof is always a little more than the ceiling, isn't it? If we just think of the building, we have the ceiling here, but there's an overhang of the roof, isn't it? The other coverings. And the other coverings are also larger. And 11 curtains shall be uh, all of one measure. Now, notice they're 30 cubits. They're the same in width, but they're longer in length. Now then, the length of the one curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of one uh, curtain, four cubits. You have that all described in uh, verse 8. Now, verse uh, 9, And thou shalt couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, and shall double the sixth curtain in the forefront of the tabernacle. And thou shalt make fifty loops on the edge of the one curtain that is outmost in the coupling, and fifty loops in the edge of the curtain with coupling, couplet, which couplet? The second. And thou shalt make fifty taches of brass, and put the taches into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be one. And the remnant that remaineth of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remaineth shall hang over the backside of the tabernacle, and a cubit on the one side, and a cubit on the other side. That's what I mentioned earlier, right? Uh, of that which remaineth in the length of the curtains of the tent. It shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. Now then, we'll read verse uh, 14 and then we'll start studying it. And thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red. That's the third one. And then and a covering above of badger skins. This would be the third and the fourth covering. Now let's come back and we'll talk about it. When we come to the roof of the tabernacle, it consisted of these curtains. First of all, the ceiling part was elaborate embroidered work joined together on the inside. And over these, a set of goat's hair curtains. And then over these, a set of ram skins dyed red. And that's what you have for the coverings of the tabernacle. And as we study each one of these, on the outside, the covering of badger skins above that. That would be the last thing. This covering is mentioned before the boards that sat on the sides. You deal with the roof, and then you talk about the boards that hold it up, and the and the foundation, those sockets of silver that I mentioned earlier. Now then, this curtain ceiling was linen curtains when you consider their material. That's what we talk about, the linen curtains on the top, or the covering, the ceiling. Remember, there are four layers. The linen curtains, goat's hair, the ram skin dyed red, and then the badger skins all over there. Those four. <coughs> and these curtains spoke of the person of Christ. Because of the white, clean linen, and the, it spoke of his holiness in nature. And by the way, the high priest on the great day of atonement was dressed in white linen that typified absolute purity. And there was no linen but fine linen, because God should have the best. It was not just rough, it was fine linen. And the fine linen typified the holiness and righteousness of Christ. We know that our righteousness, Isaiah, you write these down, Isaiah 64, verse 6, those of you that are taking some notes, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We pointed out this morning that our righteousness is in Christ. 
I believe in a message that in uh, Romans chapter 4 where it says he was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. And it speaks before that of God imputing righteousness to Abraham by faith. We had that this morning. So our righteousness comes from the Lord. And we find that the fine linen also, if you turn to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, is how we will be arrayed in glory and be clothed in glory. When it says in verse 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen, notice it's fine linen, is the righteousness of saints. That's how we will appear in God's presence in heaven. We'll be as fine linen, clothed in fine linen, for that is the righteousness of saints. So, when we're studying this first one of these coverings, you can readily see that this curtain ceiling represents righteousness. And it certainly speaks of the holiness of Christ because we're only righteous through Him. And if we look at the life of Jesus, we can see that He was perfectly holy and righteous. The Bible says in, that every thought of mind that He had pleased God. He says, I do always those things that please the Father. The Bible says he was tempted and yet without sin. He ate with publicans and sinners, but yet he was unspotted by it. He ate with them to show them the way to salvation. He touched the leper, but he was not contaminated by the leprosy. He was crucified between two thieves, and yet he uttered no complaint because he was perfectly holy and righteous in the sight of God. And only one time as Jesus hung on the cross do we see sin. But it's our sins that was laid upon Him. The Bible says He bare our sins in His own body on the tree. And then when He cried out the fourth word from the cross, the middle of the seven words that He spoke, He said, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And He was there bearing our sins in His own body on the tree. The Bible is so marvelous and so full of meaning that it would take an eternity for us to get into the depths of what it really means. You know, I've heard of preachers, you know, the stories told about one preacher, he preached about one year at a church, and he says, I've got to move on to another church because I've preached all the Bible. I thought, fella, you haven't touched it yet. I've been preaching in this one church for 47 years and there's plenty of things you haven't heard yet. And I've covered a lot of it too. And a lot of it several times. And what you're hearing tonight several times. But the thing about it is, it's so inexhaustible, isn't it? Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The first letter and the last letter of the alphabet. Think of this. Think of our own alphabet, the first letter in A to Z. And think of how many books are written in the English language with those letters of our alphabet. And John says that the words that many other things did Jesus, which are not written in this book, he says in the Gospel of John, but I suppose that the world could not contain what? The things that should be written. I have libraries. I have 
all kinds of books from various preachers and sermons and reference volumes and everything that you can imagine. And still, it's only a drop in the bucket of what knowledge there is to be had. And thank God that He's given us the ability to study and to get some of these things. So, when we're talking about uh, the things that can be gleaned from studying these things that we're studying as far as the tabernacle is concerned, there's no limit. We need to notice and imagine what the priest saw as he entered this sanctuary. What the priest saw. When he came in under God's directions, he saw a beautiful white linen ceiling or covering with embroidered work. And it tells you, it goes on to describe uh, a blue and purple and scarlet. And we'll get into the meaning of these colors later on. But blue and purple and scarlet. And then we'll find with cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. Now then, when God said thou shalt make no other uh, gods before me or any graven images, He was not talking about not adorning with beauty. He was not talking about that. In fact, He insisted that it be made this way. It was under His direction. So we're not talking about beautiful things that are presented to uh, show the glory of God and the things of God. But we are talking uh, the Scripture does forbid graven images and falling down and worshiping them. And we know that that's what it means. So, those on the outside did not see the beauty of this place. They didn't see the golden walls. Remember, everything was covered with gold. The boards that made the sides of the tabernacle, we'll read it later on, not too far down. In fact, it's the next thing on the agenda. You'll find that they were boards, but they were covered with gold. Right on down in this 26th chapter. So on the inside, all they saw was gold and white linen and all this embroidered work of blue and purple and scarlet, bright colors, beautiful colors. Can you imagine how that we would feel if we were privileged to go in where that priest could go to do his work in the tabernacle? And a golden candlestick and the table of showbread and everything just shining with... Uh, the light from that seven-branched candlestick lighting up this holy of holies. I mean, holy place. The holy of holies was behind the next veil. The beauty. And the people on the outside couldn't see that. And this represents being on the inside of Christ. Being His beauty and His glory. And we cannot imagine. You know, in this earthly form, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. We saw him as a man. At one time, he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment white as the light. And Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of that. And then John on the Isle of Patmos, uh, as he was writing the book of Revelation, saw the majesty and glory of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, didn't he? But then, can you imagine the fact that you and I are privileged in, spirit, in a spiritual way to come into the very presence of God and imagine beholding the things that are written in the Bible about Christ's appearance, His glorified appearance. But the fellow on the outside can't see that. Christians can see that glory in Christ. It says we all uh, are transformed into the same Im image of His glory. We can see that in each other. 
in a measured way. I mean, would I look upon Christian people and see their faces shine and see their uh, demeanor and see their goodness and see their love and see their compassion? I could get at least a small measure of what it would be like to look upon the Lord because we're just a minuscule amount. But think of that manifest manifested glory on the inside. Look in the book of Revelation chapter 1, if you will. We'll read what John saw. Revelation chapter 1, if you will. We're talking about the coverings of the tabernacle. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 12. It says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. These represent, these represent the churches. Seven local churches, by the way. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man. Now look at this. Clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Priestly garment. Divine service. Golden speaks of divine service. His head and his hair were white like wool. He's the Ancient of Days that Daniel speaks of. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, penetrating, warming, illuminating, cleansing. And his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. This is generally means judgment. And his voice as the, as the sound of many waters. Powerful voice. You read in the Psalms about his voice. And he had in his right hand seven stars, out of, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That means his word. His word went out. And his countenance was as the sun shining, shineth in his strength. And John says, And when I uh, saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Go ahead. You can just see the glory and the majesty of the Lord in that particular passage of Scripture. But when we look at ourselves, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we do all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There are many Scriptures I could give you. But we want to think of the typology of these materials that we have spoken of in 26. Back in Exodus 26, hold your place where we're studying. In verse 1, it says, Ten curtains of fine twine linen. Now look, and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. Blue and purple and scarlet. The white linen we've already mentioned speaks of righteousness and holiness. Uh, in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, let me read it for you. And verse 26, it says, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Made higher than the heavens. And then the blue speaks of heaven or heavenly nature. Look at those beautiful blue skies. If you read in John chapter 3, let me give you this one. John, the third chapter, if you will, and verse 13 says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. Now I want you to notice how this is stated. Even the Son of Man which is in heaven, He maintained His heavenly 
being while he was upon this earth. We know that he was manifested upon this earth, but even the Son of Man which is in heaven will say, Jesus, I thought you were not in heaven anymore. But he was always in heaven. He was in heaven upon earth. Not literally, but because of his nature, his divine nature. Read it again. And no man hath ascended up to heaven. Well, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. John in chapter 1, listen, chapter 1 says in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh, that Word was Christ, made flesh, and dwelt among us. Now look, and we beheld His glory, as uh, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wouldn't it be something to have seen Jesus upon this earth and dwelling among men and saying what He said here? So the blue speaks of heaven and heavenly nature. He came down from heaven and He ascended up to heaven. Remember Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis? Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis. Jacob saw the ladder stretched from the earth to the heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. And you come to John chapter 1. Flip over to John chapter 1 if you will. And after Nathanael had recognized Christ, in verse 49, Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. He was both that. But look, verse 50, Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? In other words, is this why you believe? Because I saw you before. Uh, Thou shalt see greater things than these. Now look, in verse 51, And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending, notice the order here, ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Where are the angels? Are they descending and ascending? No, they're ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Our connection to heaven Ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Where are the angels now? Psalm, what? Three and four? That's what? Is that seven? Okay. Psalm 34 and seven. What does it say? Remember, I've given you an easy way to remember it. And what, what did I say? The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear Him and delivereth Him. And that's easy for you to remember. You can remember 3 and 4, can't you? Okay, that's Psalm 34. And then what verse? What does 3 and 4 add up to? 7. So that's easy to remember. Just keep 3 and 4 in your mind and say that adds up to 7. And I'm sure you can remember it's in the Psalms. And that's simple enough. You got that? Okay. So remember where that wonderful Scripture is. So what do we find here? We've been talking about the the first covering of the tabernacle. Now then, uh, we know that the purple speaks of Christ as as the king's son. Purple uh, represents royalty. Look in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, if you will. Luke chapter 1, in the announcement that was made to Mary. Verse 32, He shall be great. Well, let's read verse 30. The angel said unto her, fear not, Mary, for thou 
hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. By the way, the virgin birth is the only birth of, of Christ that ever is mentioned in the Bible. That's the way it is. Some people have taken the Old Testament and said it's a young woman, but it, this is especially a young woman that's a virgin. And uh, thou shalt bring forth uh, a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Now look, verse 32. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. What do we find here? This purple speaks of uh, Christ as the king's son. He's going to reign over the house of David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Uh, the scarlet is the other color. Now you had the white linen, remember? You had the blue, it's heavenly. You had the purple, speaks of royalty. And then you have the scarlet. This reminds us of Christ's death, our Lord's death. Psalm 22, we have a great description. In fact, 22 verse 6 on down. But let's, in Psalm 22, what does it say? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 21, no, 22. Let me get this straight. I want to give them to you. Yeah, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This speaks of Christ laying down His life on the cross. And then Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. That's His resurrection. And then Psalm 24, His coming again. And you'll find that in Psalm 24. So Psalm 22, 23, and 24 speak of Christ laying down His life. Speaks of Christ's resurrection in Psalm 23. And in Psalm 24, Christ coming again in glory. Well, I'll have to sidetrack there and give you the, the reason for all this. If you look at uh, John chapter 10, He's the good shepherd that lays down His life for the sheep. Uh, John 10 verse 11. We'll just give you one verse because we won't have time to continue. In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. On down he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. No man taketh it from me, I lay it down of myself. Okay, that shows us Psalm 22. Now Psalm 23, turn to Hebrews chapter 13, if you will, quickly. Hebrews 13. I want you to get this. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace, listen carefully, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. That's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalmist David said, The Lord is my shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now then, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now then, what about Psalm 24? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul speaks of, I mean, Peter speaks of feeding the flock of God in verse 2. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Now look in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, shall appear, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The great shepherd 
in resurrection leads his sheep. Psalm 23. And the, the uh, uh, chief shepherd comes again. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So apply these three aspects to Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Some of you have heard that about five or six times. And others maybe the second or third time. And some of you maybe the first time. I don't know. But anyway, it's a wonderful study. But let's get back to these coverings now. So we're talking about the purple. Now the scarlet reminds us of Christ's death. That's what we just mentioned. In Psalm 22, you have a graphic description of the cross. In fact, if you look at verse 6, look at Psalm 22, verse 6, as well as the first part of it. Psalm 22, and verse 6, it says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Remember, in verse 1, it said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And the uh, graphic description of the cross and how Jesus humbled Himself. And He was crushed. He was bruised. He finished the work of atonement. And He said, It is done or accomplished. It is finished. Now, if you'll notice these four colors that we've mentioned already, and we're going to have to close. These four colors 